Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hello, Stella. Hello, Sasha. <laughs> what you doing here? <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm just here, you know, hanging out, recording this podcast with you. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, I thought it'd be nice to swing by and see if Sasha's had an interesting design. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll do my best. Um, we have a, actually a lot of uh, like updates and things on our mind, God. I think. Yeah, it's been busy, hasn't it? It has. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I guess we should tell everybody about is that we just got back from the Annapolis, Maryland weekend of workshops. Yeah. And it was really, again, really special. We we kind of had a different format, you know, our our parent events in the past were at very modest retreat centers and they yeah. were, the pace was really gentle and there was, you know, kind of people would stay on the campus or the, 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 the location and kind of hang out together. But this time we stayed at a hotel and it was a little bit more um, upscale, I guess. It was a and little that, bit. Yeah, that was very yeah. interesting because when you're in a retreat, it's almost like you go into a retreat vibe. You know what I mean? The, mm-hmm. the atmosphere, you know, you're certainly not talking on the phone so easy. It's just it's it's you can feel that you're in that kind of because there were kind of holy places, for want of a better phrase. But they were beautiful. I thought yeah. they were lovely. Like, but a few people, a few of, of the participants had said they'd like something more up market. So we went for it. But this time, because we were in a hotel, it felt more business like it was like, right, what do you have to give us? Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And I'd say it was very productive, but it was more business-like. It was still very powerful, but it did change the atmosphere a little bit, I think. Yeah, mm. and I think our material was really different. So we, yeah. we had a lot of presentations with material directly from the book, and we're going to talk actually about yeah. some of that today. Um, whereas in the past, we ran them much more like process-oriented groups. And we definitely had plenary sessions with information, but it was a bit more conversational. Whereas in, in this weekend of workshops, we had information to provide and people were furiously taking notes pretty yeah. much most of the time. And there was a lot yeah. of exchange. And one thing that I want to share, which we've started experimenting with, is the role plays, which are a oh, yeah. huge success. So t- tell our listeners, like, what are the role plays? So what we did was, I thought they were a great idea. So what we did was imagine if you wanted Sasha to play the 12-year-old daughter and I, the, then the parent would play themselves, if you follow me. And so that back and forward, for example, about a very specific issue such as pronouns why won't you use my pronouns mm-hmm. and you know what I mean we we played the the person or vice versa the parent played the child and we yeah. played being the parent I think we did that way around is it yeah, yeah we, we did, did. Yeah. because we wanted to provide some different ways that parents can respond yeah. to their kids and we kind of did it as a team so it would be me you yeah. and Lisa sitting next yeah. to each other and then the parent was like in the hot seat in the middle of this, like the circle. parent sorry I just banged everything there and <laughs> And in my excitement, the parent got to embody 
being the kid, which yes. there's a huge therapeutic benefit to that. Actually yeah. imagining you're the kid, you get an understanding they can't do unless you actually imagine you are. And yeah. so you could see that gave them some depth that they didn't have. You could see yeah. it. Yeah. And we also did a few role plays where the parent wanted to play um, another adult in their child's life. So I think in this case, it was like a school counselor or a college counselor who's very affirming of the child. And the parent wanted to know kind of like, how do I engage with this school yeah. staff with more confidence so that I don't feel so kind of trampled on or um, sidelined? in my own mm. child's upbringing. Like these are really important conversations that parents are having every day. And it's really hard sometimes to know. And it's interesting even because we, you, you, me and Lisa, oftentimes we will look at one another and think, oh, wow, Lisa, that was an amazing yeah. idea. I've never thought of that. Yeah. So there are things that come up in the moment that are new, that we just feed off of each other's yeah. energy and we feed off of the parents' energy. And the parents yeah. sometimes have amazing like offer, like suggestions and offers, like, have you thought about this or that? So it was really inspiring. And I mean, we, we definitely noticed these parents are incredible and quite savvy. And there were a lot of really, really yeah. kind of inspiring and hopeful family situations, as well as some very difficult stories. I mean, as always. The stories are, are very profound because they're so horribly sad and difficult. So they they have remained sad and difficult. I think the parents have changed a lot over mm. the years from when we first or certainly you would have first you know got into it and then me I just feel the parents are a lot more savvy now the parents because there's so much more information and there's yeah. nothing nothing lacking in the effort of the parents they have read and they have attuned to the to the way forward and you can see it in them you can see that they have just a, a very um a knowledgeable way and mm -hmm. they'll have tried things and they'll know things in a way that they didn't know a few years ago. They're, they're different. Yeah, we, we were just kind of talking before we hit record that a lot of parents back in the day, yeah. their go to strategy was I'm going to show my child all the studies. I'm going to show yeah. them this Dr. Zucker paper and I'm going to show them these stats. And I think, you know, we, you and I and Lisa have thought about that a lot. Like, does that work? Does that not work? And based on the hundreds of parents we've talked to, we have realized that does not work. And <laughs> now parents know that. I mean, parents yeah. will tell each other, like, by the way, you know, and I'm not saying that they, they learned that from us, but I think we've, we've been able to collect so many stories and then pass along our observations in addition, of course, to our clinical judgment. Um, but I think parents are starting to get it that you don't actually approach this directly head on all the time. It's usually yeah. kind of from the side and you have to be finessing the situation a bit. I think a lot of them had no guidance and they were living in a world where they were on their own and nobody told them anything. They had found it out in the dead of night through studies because right. that's what they had got their knowledge. So they just thought I just have to impart the way I learned to the kid who has been pretty much indoctrinated. Yeah. And how you learn will be very different to how your kid learns about any of this. And so what's lovely is the feeling of we're, we're talking to knowledgeable people who, who know their stuff and yeah. have generally kind of 
enacted some interventions and are wondering about others. I just thought I just did a live Q&A in my Substack today. And the questions I was getting were really they were brilliant, but they were complex. Mm-hmm. They were not like, oh, my God, I'm glad I'm here, <laughs> which is what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like there were complicated you know, good, analysed, talking about the whole thing and then saying, oh, where do I go now? And it's like, OK, right, you've tried quite a lot of things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Which is good. For sure. And I mean, speaking of complex problems, I mean, one of the things that I've been talking about recently in, in my membership group is you know, at this point, we're many, many years in and now there's an yeah. avalanche of resources. Yeah. And so my most recent post was about how parents can become, you know, knowledgeable by doing the research. They can feel more, you know, confident and also they can get totally overwhelmed mm. and paralyzed. Mm. So I kind of took a broad bird's eye view of all the different things that oh, yeah. you and I talk about. And I distilled it down to six principles for young adults. Whoa. And then the next video is going to be 10 principles for younger teens. So you know, I, I'm trying to keep it concise because, yeah. you know, we could all sit here and watch two hour videos day in and day out. And then you are never going to actually do the parenting. And like, and it's into so different for people who think, oh, is the tide turning? Oh, my God. It's it's a different planet than it used yeah. to be. But even today, I, somebody said something and I said, Oh, yeah, they wanted to know, like, what should be the best, let's say, resources to show the kid the best article about autism or the best article about D-trans or whatever. And I was like, oh, there's so much out there. You'd have to really troll through it yourself. And I just paused thinking years ago, there was one article. I know. <laughs> there was nothing. And so people gripped it so tightly saying, if I can get my child to listen to this, they will see the light. And, mm-hmm. you know, I will give them Lisa Lippman's 2018 study and everything will change. Now they're just snowed under by content and they're looking for things like six principles. They're looking for actually distilled versions because of so much, which is a very good complaint to have. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this is kind of sparked ideas for me. Like I'd love to put together um, a recommended reading list. That's a kind of project oh, yeah. that I, I want to put onto my site. Um, and, you know, I've also been, uh, as another piece of news from my end, I've also been kind of rethinking the way I organize my parent consults because I leave a few spots open every week to do one-on-one consultations And I'm playing with a system so that parents can just go to my website and book it themselves. Oh, yeah. And that is going to be huge. So I'm working on that. And if anybody is interested, go to my website, which is Inspired Teen Therapy, and click on newsletters and just add yourself there to the newsletter. And I'll be updating everybody once that calendar becomes publicly available and you can just go ahead and book your yeah. own appointment. So I'm I'm really excited about that because it's going to simplify the process and also help me actually consult more frequently. Because, you know, if you have a cancellation last minute uh, the day before, you may not have time to contact the next person on the waiting list and so on. So once it's kind of more parent-led, <laughs> yeah. so to speak, it'll be a lot easier we're, we're, we're in general in life, you know, all those doodle polls for all these meetings now, we're getting so used to them now, like just yeah. putting them in, in a way. I once was once, I once worked in a counselling thing 
And it was all worked by that. This is maybe, God, it must have been 15, 10, 10, 15 So years they ago. were advanced. Then. Oh, they were. Now I'm thinking yeah. about it. They were. Yeah, it was at least 10 years ago. But at the time, it felt like something from Planet, like Zog. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> you put your name in the slot. Put your name in the slot. <laughs> I love that. The yeah. other day you said, call me Elon about something and I don't remember what it was. It was I, like... probably, I probably successfully sent an email. <laughs> By the yeah. way, everybody, Stella uses a calendar, a handwritten calendar where she writes things in. With my quill. With her quill, yes. <laughs> yeah. We'd like to jump in here really quick and offer up a thank you to Genspect, one of our sponsors. Genspect is an international organization that offers a healthy approach to sex and gender, and they're hosting the Bigger Picture Conference in Denver, Colorado this November. Be sure to listen to our episode number 134 to hear about all the amazing speakers lined up and visit genspect.org to order tickets. And if you can't make it in person, online tickets are available. We'd also like to give a shout out to Geta. Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. If you're looking for a therapist for yourself or your child, check out the GETA directory. And if you're a clinician who is questioning the affirmation model and you're looking for resources and community, please consider joining GETA today. Visit genderexploratory.com to learn more. But I tell you what, um, having been in Annapolis, it's very good to meet people in person because I think it was our third meeting in person over the last few years. Obviously, we would have had more if it hadn't been for COVID, you know what I mean? Because, whoa, there was a huge, yeah. huge need for it. And it's it's it really gets you thinking about the parent experience. It mm-hmm. really gets you thinking they are what is what they have been subject to, what has happened to their families, like the siblings, the entire devastation station that has mm-hmm. happened in some families it, it's only when you witness it in real life i always thought if, if these journalists that are so bland about it if they just saw in real life what's going down with these parents it's shocking yeah. a big a big theme that we noticed um is something that we wanted to build on today is just like this question of am i a bad parent yeah and that comes from lots yeah. of different angles. It's like, am I a bad parent that my child became dysphoric? Yeah. Am I a bad parent that I can't support my child the way she wants me to? Am I a bad parent because I don't really believe her? Am I a bad parent because my kid is so distressed? Like there are so many ways that that comes up. Am I a bad parent because my child is so unhappy? A- am I a bad parent because everybody thinks I'm doing this wrong? Am I a bad parent? Because my kid has been consistently out of sorts, really since they were born with this and that and the other. And now I'm in the middle of this. I don't know. It feels like it's so unfair. It's so unfair. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, a huge number of parents who their entire support system that they've always looked to for you know, like bouncing ideas off one another for validation where they felt like they fit in that whole group is telling them they're a bad parent. And we hear this a lot from parents who kind of have like a liberal background or they live in a very progressive city and everyone around them who knows them 
and knows that they're good parents all of a sudden is suspicious of their intentions if they don't jump up and down for joy about their child's identity. And what's funny is, you know, we're most conservative about the things that we love the most, you know, because they're the most precious to us. And so it's very easy to be cavalier with another kid's, another parent's kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. so easy. I remember one parent saying, yeah, wait until it's your own kid. And I, I, it always stuck in my mind. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. very, very, very different when it's your own kid. Yeah. And that's, that's the faces. I can still remember them from Annapolis. Just the face of the worry just etched on their faces. Mm-hmm. The worry mm-hmm. of, and you know, writing down the notes, just hoping that they could get it right. Just hoping that this awful, awful tragedy would just move on, move yeah. on from their lives. Like Yeah. We covered the parent experience in a previous episode. Yeah. And we'll be sure to include it in the notes. So if you haven't listened to that, please go do. That was a very early episode before yeah. video, before anything. But it was called something like gender dysphoria, what it's like for the parents. I think it was yeah. episode 16, like really early on. <laughs> and in that episode, we talked a lot about the the kind of social dynamics of like what happens uh, with the neighbors, with doctors, with therapists, with gender clinics, when your kid is, let's say, a classic gender dysphoria case versus oh, yeah. an ROGD case. And we talked a lot about those kind of social pressures. But today we want to deepen that and actually talk about the emotional experience of the parents yeah. and really examine this because this is something that we talked about in our workshops. And this is something we thought a lot about as we wrote the book. Yeah. When kids say they're trans. So we want to just stay there and just explore what are the emotional experiences of these parents like? Because when you think about it, 100 episodes, like it was 116 or it was 16. That must have been about two years ago. So it, it, it was yeah. a very different world because we were very busy giving information. Mm-hmm. While now we're actually saying, I kind of think the grief of the parents is something that really kind of was driven home to me yet again when I met them in real life in Annapolis. Just the kind of, this is not what they wanted for their families. This is not what they wanted for any of them. This was not not why they had children. This was just so not what they had signed up for. And yeah. um, the, 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 the terrified fear on their faces so it's a combination of utter, utter sadness combined with fear, just like really proper, full level fear that your child is going to do something that will damage themselves and that they'll regret. It's the combination. It's not just mm-hmm. that they'll damage mm-hmm. themselves. It's that they'll damage themselves and they will later regret and could easily look to you, the parent, and say, why didn't you stop me? It's such a kind of a crippling set of problems to have at the same time because these young people are usually also um, kind of rejecting their parents' input and very adamant about what they want and and their independence and their desire to seek out their own way to live and their own decisions. So parents feel both this sense of responsibility to 
kind of slowing things down or opening up the conversation. And at the same time, they're really being pushed to the side. And the kid is is essentially saying, I don't want your help on this decision. That's not yeah. always the case, but that it's definitely awful. feels like the case in many situations. A kind of a rejection of the parent combined with blame. You know what I mean? You're doing something wrong. Whatever you're doing, you're doing something wrong. Whether it's too much or too little, you're doing something wrong. And I remember, you know, uh, some parents talking about basically being slagged off online by your kid and effectively being humiliated by your kid online and then you're you're supposed to be the loving parent while they're they're humiliating you're betraying you on a very deep level it's kind of it's very hard like it's hard enough to be a parent anyway but it's very hard when your your kid is stabbing you in the front and in the back and in the head (laughs) you know what I mean yeah. And you're supposed to be because you've got all this, you know, kind of words of wisdom from us saying, oh, you know, connection. <laughs> like, I want to kill them. I want to actually mm-hmm. kill them. And that was one thing I, th- I thought was very healthy and authentic was quite a few parents in Annapolis saying, I'm angry. I'm angry that they got into this. I'm angry that they've stayed into it. I'm angry that they're, they cannot see the wood from the trees. Yeah. I would, I, I'm a parent and I think I would get, well, no shit, of course I would, but I think I would get angry. I I think I would. I think I'd think, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's something that I think we can spend a little bit of time on because when we were at the retreat, um, I, I kind of talked a little bit about emotions and I'll, I'll allude to Hilary Jacobs Hendel. She's an author of a book called It's Not Always Depression. And oh, yeah. she kind of identifies these emotions um, that are core emotions and then inhibitory emotions. Oh, yeah. And her premise is that emotions, core emotions, are biologically wired into us. You can't stop them. You can't talk yourself out of them. They just happen. Now, it Brilliant. doesn't mean that we always have to do the thing that our emotion is telling us to do, but we have to allow ourselves to have the emotion. And in therapy, I often talk about this. Emotions are a lot like waves. They kind of come up, they crest, and then they go away. Nobody gets stuck in Mm. anger forever. You're not going to just like stay in anger, this like seething, boiling, like you can't. It's not sustainable. But there are certain types of emotions that... Um, create like a secondary response in the parent. So if a parent is mad at their child or angry, they often very quickly, we feel shameful about that. Yeah, yeah. And, And we really try to give parents this kind of permission to have all of your emotions, let them be, feel them so that they will eventually crest and pass. And then you can make conscious decisions about how you want to respond. But if we suppress our emotions and we don't even acknowledge that they are haveable, uh, we end up actually kind of, I think about the game whack-a-mole, you know, yeah. like it's this arcade game. And if you don't allow it here, it's going to pop up somewhere yeah. else and pop up somewhere else. So I thought, think about that a lot when it comes to these disallowed emotions. Yeah, the emotions thing is very interesting. The more we are aware of our core emotions, like you said, and that they just come. And one one of the core, I don't know, is it reflex? Is it emotion or is it a response? Is disgust, and people don't talk yeah, about disgust. It is and a actually, core emotion. Yeah, and it's 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 higher. It's more females are more sensitive to disgust than males. So. 
according to the studies, which is quite interesting. But when you have discussed, we tend to uh, we tend to be ashamed of it. Always the secondary emotion is very often, not always, but shame is a big thing in this world. Yeah. Big thing. Parents feel very shamed. And so shame often pops up quite often. But this disgust, I think, needs to be acknowledged because if you have a, just a disgust, I, you know, I read a thing, I, sh- I traumatized, read it on Mumsnet today where your woman had a rat fall on her neck and it went down her arm. I was like, oh my God, the response <laughs> you would have of that, you know, it's so res- reflexive. There's nothing you can do. Now, if you have that, and we don't know why, because this is an unstudied world. If you have that because your child, who's a female, now has a male voice and hair, we don't know what is the primal evolutionary response to the fact that your female child is actually presenting as male. We don't actually know. In years yeah. to come, I think they'll study this. Something about the parent watching the child change physically into something different that you know because they're your kid. Yes. I think that, I think quite apart from the fact it's jarring, like I've met quite enough uh, people who become, let's say, female. It's the it's the voice. Everybody talks about the voice. When somebody's voice, it's almost like your voice and your eyes don't change. And when you meet somebody 20 years later, 40 years later, mm. when you went to school with them, you recognize them through looking at their eyes and their voice. You go, oh, yeah, I remember you. Or if you haven't heard somebody for years and you hear yes. them, you go, oh, how's it? You know, yes. you, you go back. For that to change. Wow. wow. Yeah. It's remarkable when you really think about it that way. Yeah. And the change can happen fast. Yes. If for females who take testosterone, that change is quick. So it doesn't even give the parent a chance to titrate slowly no. into yeah. that experience. It is like within weeks, the voice is different and it's different forever. And because of, and this is to do with biology, but because the voice box is smaller than the male voice box, so you're putting testosterone in, sometimes for some of these voices, not always, but some of them, it almost maintains on like a boy who's, whose voice is breaking. It's, it's not, it's kind of off key or something. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it remains mm-hmm. in that position. It's not been talked about a lot. Some people say it online. What do they call it? The testy voice or the T voice or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But that it's it's not the baritone of a male who has yeah. a voice box that can accommodate the testosterone to change. It's, it's a kind of a technical thing about the size of the voice box, but it can sound hoarse. It can yeah. sound like, and when your kid is sick, I, I I know I have such a strong response to my kid being sick. It's just so physical. It takes you back to when they were a baby. You know, you I mean you want to look after mm. them. It's it's very physical. Your response to the child being sick, when their voice is changing and it doesn't sound right, you know, and at the same time there's hair growing and there's a physical change, and specifically around I'm talking about testosterone. Testosterone is such a beast. Yeah, Uh, it's phenomenal how those parents must respond. We don't know what the evolutionary thing is going on there, but it's clearly massive. And I want to also just lift this up for parents of boys. Oh, yeah. The boys taking estrogen and blocking their testosterone start developing breasts. Oh, yeah. This is a huge deal. And 
it becomes obviously not hideable at some point. Sometimes they're not hiding it at all. But talk about a visceral reaction. Because the breasts are also a sexual organ. So uh. there's a way that there's a sexual element, even if the you know transitioning person isn't trying to flaunt that or be sexual. Breasts are not a breast. We hide our own breasts, like mm. as women. So there's something that must be so uncanny for parents of boys who see their son developing this female sexualized body. Uh, there is more. You're right. Everything you said is right. There's a few things. One is, yeah, breasts these days are mostly seen as, as a sexual aspect of life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mostly. As well as that, when a male takes oestrogen and uh, the breasts grow, there is a period that is quite long that they effectively have a pubescence breasts. Mm -hmm. Do you understand me? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not as if it becomes, they might be 20, but it's not as if they have a, they have actually a 12 year old breast. It's, there's something very jarring about that. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just, it's a fact that they're, they're growing, but I, I, it took me some time to realize that it's like, oh, of course it's a different stage. It's a pubescence breast as such. And one day it'll be a woman's and it might be quite so jarring because the age differential seems strange. Like a 40 year old man having the breasts of, I know this is difficult for people to listen to, okay. but this is yeah. actually what happens. Like if a 40 year old man took oestrogen today, he will soon be growing in breasts as such in the same manner as a 12 and a 13 year old. They're a different shape and they're growing in and they take some time before they look like a woman's. They really do. It, it, it takes mm -hmm. quite mm -hmm. a bit of time. So there's a very strange period which the families are looking at going, it's not even just straight a woman's breasts have arrived. It's there's a long kind of no man's land of a pubescence kind of shape has arrived. Then as well as that, I think everybody will thank me for moving on. The hips, <laughs> the mm. hips, there's something so I didn't know any of this before I really started examining trans. When you see the rounded hips, it just feels so female. It, mm. It's, it's mm -hmm. so it's so deeply connected when you see your, your son's body change. I don't know. I think we're asking an awful lot of parents. I think parents should have more of space. I remember like back in the day and uh, people were always very proud in Ireland if their if their son became a priest. But the parents had a special uh, relationship with the priest who was their son. If you follow me, they didn't necessarily call him father because he was their child. Mm -hmm. They still had the old name for the priest's son, if you follow me. He had his own special relationship. But I kind of wonder in the future, wow. yeah, might there be some freedom for the parents to have a special role when their kids transition? Because they're the ones that created the child and gave birth to the child. And everybody else, yeah, that's fair enough. But the parents, wow. I think, have a special role. That is a remarkable question. I'd love to explore that further, per particularly because it's often the parents that are the last holdout. Yeah. And the person transitioning is often just waiting for the parents yeah. to get on board. Which, you know, as someone who works with 
you know, transitioning or trans-identified or desisting individuals. I'm very sympathetic to how hard it is on the yeah. kids too. Like, it's it's painful. It's painful yeah. all the way around. Yeah. And there's it really is. It's important, you know, for the kids to try and understand why this is hard for their parents because the 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 simple narrative of it this is transphobia. It's so ridiculously flat and not not accurate. Um. And it's just very hard for everybody involved. We hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as we are. We just wanted to take a quick moment and say thank you to all of our listeners. Your support is the fuel that keeps this train running. So please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platforms. And do be sure to check out the conversations that are happening on YouTube in the comments section. We think that we have some of the smartest, most engaged viewers out there, and we really appreciate all of the interactions. Also, we produce additional bonus content every week for our listener community on Patreon. Go to widerlenspod.com and click on join our listener community. Your financial support means a lot to us. And for those of you who are in need of parenting support and resources, we each have parent coaching membership groups. So please do check those out. You can find links to both of them at widerlenspod.com or in the show notes. And of course, you can buy our book, When Kids Say They're Trans, out now in the UK and coming out very soon in the US. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. I, I want to stick with the, the parents' emotions, though, because we touched on this very important and not often discussed, discussed, <laughs> yeah. not often discussed. Um, <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about the fear because yeah. parents have kind of, I think about it as like two types of fear. They have the fear that a parent feels um, about, you know, what this means for them, what this means for their, their kind of, future imagined for yeah. their child. And when the child is showing no fear, the parent oh, yeah. also has to feel responsible for the child's fear. So we've talked about like holding the ambivalence. This comes up a lot in our in-person events. You know, when the parent is trying to hold the doubt for the child, or they're trying to say, you know, we're concerned that this may not be the right move. Often the child just holds all the certainty. So the child is saying, I know this is the right step for me. I know I'm not going to regret it. I'm really confident about this. And the same thing I think happens with fear. If the child is not fearful for herself and her future, then the parent's doing double duty. Like they're afraid that they might lose their child. They're afraid that they might have the estrangement. They're afraid of losing their kid. And they're afraid of all the things the kid is not allowing herself to be afraid about. Because she's yeah. like, oh, detransition, that's not a thing. Yeah, yeah. It's so not fair on the parents who feel they have to do the fear because the kid has, has basically, you know, pawned it off onto the parent. You do the worrying. I've met those kids, a lot of kids, and they, they do care for their parents. They do. They want their parents to see that this is the best thing for them. That's what they yeah. actually, you know yes. what I mean? Yes. They And they want their parents' approval and they're very sad not to get it. And I feel for them. I feel for them, but I also think the parents are often more educated about the issue. They often know more about the actual. Now, that's my experience. I think some of your kids that you've met, you've been with them for years. Do you know what I mean? Well, mine might be shorter kind of affairs where I think 
the parents know a good deal more than the child and the parents keep the knowledge because they don't know how to impart the knowledge. I often wonder, is it culturally different a little bit with yourself, Sasha? Maybe it's, sorry, maybe it's a little bit more in America. The parents are telling the kids everything they know. And maybe in Ireland, they're holding back. I don't know. Mm, I sometimes think that when you're talking. Yeah. I think it really depends on the family and the situation. I mean, we've encountered so many families who are terrified to say anything to their kid because they're afraid of losing them. Yeah. Um, but in in like moments of I tend to think about moments where there's like a fork in the road and there's like a decision point. Sometimes parents will try to kind of foster the courage to say what they want to say. Like if their kid is about to leave for college or their kid is about to start a new school, like maybe now is my chance to say something. Yeah. But there are definitely families who are on a regular basis trying to talk with their kid about gender and it becomes an impediment to just being able to have a normal relationship, which I get it. Like your kid just told you that they're not the sex that they are. Of course, that's going to be a huge impediment. So I'm not trying to put the blame on the parents, but when they, when people get locked into giving gender so much power, yeah. Sometimes I wonder if it prolongs the dysphoria. Yes. I think we don't give enough time to that point that they're they're sadly sometimes the 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 power struggle prolongs the situation. I I don't want to add more stress mm-hmm. onto the parents lives. It's the last thing I want to do. But we would be stakeholder salesmen if we didn't say actually th- there is an yeah. issue with this. There is an issue that sometimes it seems to be get prolonged. However, I I I saw you ask this and it made it made sense to me. The crash and burn, you said it somewhere on a WhatsApp, I think yesterday or something. The crash and burn might shock a kid out of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that speeds it up. But that's such a high stakes approach. While the slower might prolong it, but actually it's not so high stakes. It, It might be a more stabilizing way. It could still prolong it. But do you understand me? That some of the crash and burn, the crash and burn could absolutely shake some of it and some out of it and it could be brilliant the crash and burn could actually whack other people the other direction do, do you know yeah. what I mean it feels like mm-hmm. a gamble that I think if it was my kid I'd go for the long and prolonged even yeah. needlessly prolonged over crash and burn and actually it's a high stake and you could have lost that gamble I was thinking that I never replied in your WhatsApp, but I wanted to bring that up. Well, let me ask you a question about that, because I'm really interested in this. So the idea is that sometimes this is my my theory. Yeah. Sometimes young people adopt a trans identity. They have very few sources of um, questions or doubts or nuance. So they go into it with a very simplistic fantasy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they go to the gender clinic and they get their hormones and they falsely believe this is going to be a magic solution to all my problems and my anxiety is going to go away and I'm easily going to be able to make friends and everyone's going to love me for who I truly am. And that false fantasy is a bubble. Yeah. And then when they start transitioning and they realize that it isn't a magic solution, there's a kind of crash and burn. Like the bubble is burst and that can become a kind of a wake-up call that abruptly starts to shake the 
the worldview of the person. Okay. Now yeah. in therapy, part of our job is yeah. to help young people understand the much more complex story that they are a part of, which is mm -hmm. your dysphoria probably comes from tons of different reasons. And this whole, like, I was born trans, that's not an adequate story. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's one thing that we're trying to do in therapy. Number two, we're trying to complexify, well, what are the outcomes going to be of taking this hormone and blocking yeah. that hormone? It's not some magic solution which makes you authentic. It is a strategy that is going to create certain things and maybe not change other things. And there's going to be some social ramifications to transitioning. Some will be positive, but some will be negative. And you may be tokenized and you may be kind of treated in an infantilizing way. And you also may struggle with your family relationships. So like there's all these things. And okay? you also may struggle with your sex relationships. The idea that you're going to have an easy sex life is, is pretty correct. Reduced. Keep correct. going. Okay. So what happens in, in my view is that when a young person has that more nuanced and complexified version of the story. Uh-huh. It makes bumps in the road more palatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because they don't have a false idea of what transition will bring, they can perhaps see both the positive and the negative aspects of it. So my view is that our job is to make our help our, make our clients more resilient and robust and be more honest with themselves about yeah. short-term and long-term things. Yeah. Are you prepared for the lifetime this is going to bring you? Um, but I, I, I suspect that when you help somebody be healthier, number one, it opens the door for them thinking more clearly about what this means. And it also... I think it prevents there from being a very black and white way of looking at things. And, which is where I would say my uh, downfall in life has been, and many of my friends, <laughs> is when you can intellectualize, you can stay in that space and avoid reality through intellectualizing. And it's a weakness of therapy arguably that you can I know we're supposed to not be intellectualized and we should be staying with the feelings but therapy slips into intellectualizing and rationalizing I think it does maybe I'm just a bad therapist but I think it's something we have to be careful of and I think I've I've met so many people who are very comfortable knowing okay we all know it with the smokers they'll look at you and say these cigarettes are killing me and they know everything about it. They know these cigarettes are killing me, but they're comfortable in the narrative of that. I don't know if I'm getting you here, mm. but I... No, I, 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 I am. I'm getting it. I'm getting yeah. it. I, I think we're veering into different territory here, but okay. I will say, okay. I, think there are, I think there are cases where a full, clear view of reality is still compatible with making choices that a person knows have damaging consequences. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, oh, I would yeah. say 
that I make decisions every day. Oh, God. Sometimes I know that there are better decisions I could make, but it's always a series of trade-offs. I yeah, mean, I think that's life. just a reality. That's a yeah. reality of life. Oh, yeah. So that's what you're saying. That, But what, what's the problem with that? That's Is that not just life? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you yeah, make I mean, trade-offs. That, that's the thing. I mean, I was even thinking a little bit about, you know, the parental emotions one of the things that's really challenging in this ROGD world is that on a whole, I have a real problem with gender medicine, period. Mm -hmm. And so I am 100% on board with parents who are trying to divert that possibility at all costs. I get it. And I think there's an ambivalence and a humility that we all have to have that some people will go down this road. And they may never tell themselves, oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, why didn't my parents stop yeah. me? Or oh, yeah. this was the worst decision. So I just, that's a fact of life that I don't know what yes. to do with. I mean, we're here because we're trying to divert dysphoric people from making like life altering changes to their body. And statistically speaking, with like millions of people on this planet, like billions of people on this planet, mm. some people are going to transition and feel just fine about it for a long yeah. time. I I hear you and I agree with you and I've met them and you've met them, you know what I mean? And they are happy with their trade-off and they've made their trade-off and that's life. And I think I can hear the feminists who are listening to this episode. <laughs> I think I can hear them right now. And they have a very good point saying, as long as it's not impacting society in a detrimental way, that works. Do, do you know what I mean? I, I, I know that will be a kind of, it's not just a trade-off for yourself there. You know what I mean? It's not just a personal decision. It's also a personal, it's also a societal decision, if you follow me. I, I would argue. I, I think, I think you don't, you're not so sure. Go on. I mean, me. I, I, okay, so I come from a, a culture which is a communal culture. In the Arab world, you you don't really make any decisions without thinking about how okay. it's going to impact your mother and your father and your sister and your uncle and your brother and your community and your church. And I I feel very fortunate that I, at some point pretty young in life, decided I'm not going to live that way. So I've made a lot of decisions. In, and I'm not talking about transition, obviously, but I've made yeah. a lot of decisions in my life that had a negative impact on people around me because I felt like that's what I had to do to be myself as, as trite as those words are. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, I make lots of decisions every day that like, if I, you know, chose instead of exercising to like dedicate two more hours a day to my work and my clients, I probably could be doing a better thing for the world. But I don't because I, not every decision we make is good for society. Now I'm not, out there um, trying to ask people to say something that's not true to me or lie to me about what they think I am or kind of get into people's spaces that are not mine. But I don't think that we all make decisions only based on what's good for society. We live in a very individualistic culture. So what do you think? I mean, when feminists say, well, not yeah. if it's bad for society, well, is every decision that you make good for society? I guess I just, I don't okay. buy that frame of thinking. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I, I'll just push back a little bit because we started okay. with the parents. It's one thing that it's, 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 
It's difficult on society. It's it's creating difficulties. Yeah. Okay. Park that. Okay. Society can come up with policies. If it's devastating your family, if you're if you're you know if you're the father of four children, and you're transitioning, and if it's if it's utterly devastating the family, I think that should be taken into consideration in life. If it's if it's devastating your parents. Might you think? Yeah, and I, I agree. I did the same as you. I lived a life very, you know, I'm from Ireland. You know, your mommy and your daddy are a big deal. <laughs> I, yes, I definitely yes. went against the grain of my family. There's no doubt about that. So I did very much what you did. You, you know what I mean? So I get it. We've got to have freedom to do it on some level. But at the same time, if having met the parents, could you do it? to them? <laughs> no. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that they're trying to do something to their no, parents, to be fair. They're not. I they're think not. there are some cases where there's there's a way that this identity is really, I'm going to stick it to my mom. Like, I do think that there's oh, yeah. sometimes a nugget of that. But on the whole, I would not yeah, say that these kids no, are right. trying to do something to their parents. Um, and I think the responsibility that a father has to his children is very different than the responsibility that twenty year old has to his parents. Right? Couldn't so agree more. Those are different agree things. More. The, well, the responsibility goes a different way. The parent has yeah. a responsibility for the child. The child doesn't right. quite have the same. It's just we not, have it's not some really responsibility comparable. to parents, yeah. of course, but it's yeah. just a different thing. But I mean, yeah. I guess all of this ties into. This is this is an emotion and it's also, I guess, a psychological state, but the unknown of what happens when your child is going down this road is so hard. I know. And and I just want parents to hold like, you know, something that kept coming up in the in the workshops was um, when we asked parents to reflect on like what they've picked up from our time together or what they've learned, a lot of parents said this has made me realize I can't change how my child thinks about himself. I can't change how my child is behaving. I can't change my child's beliefs about gender or identity. I can control the way I respond to my child and the way I show up as a parent. So I guess that really resonates for me because each story is very different. Each case is very different. And there's absolutely zero formula for what is coming down the pipeline for these families. Yeah. So holding it with a little bit of lightness rather than getting locked in um, into this feeling like I have to make my 24-7 about trying to extricate my child from this, the grip of this, that's so it's so unreasonable, actually, and detrimental to the parent. Yeah. There are things you can do. Obviously, we, we believe and we know that there are lots of things parents can do. But you can't, at the end of the day, hold yourself responsible for what your child is going to do or not going to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ultimately... I think Lisa said it during the weekend. She said something like, you know, part of the bargain of having children is losing your children. Like when they grow up, you lose them. You yeah. know what I mean? So it might be accelerated a little bit with this and it might feel it's turned a very strange turn. But actually, usually the kids grow up, they hit their 20s and you effectively lose them. They visit you. You're, you know what I mean? But it's it's a very different scenario. 
And no, this is not what the parent wanted. And yes, you still have your life. Yeah. And we, we did try to communicate that. And there was a little bit of resistance from some parents. They're like, no, 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 no. I'm right in the middle of something here. I'm, I'm nowhere near that space. But some of the parents whose kids are longer in or who have medicalized, they're nodding going, yeah, I, I, I have to retrieve my life here. Yeah. I've lost I've lost myself for six years. None of it has gone right. None of it has gone as I wanted. And now I've only got I've got my partner. I've got me. I've got other things in my life and I've got to start plugging into them. So it was yeah. it was it was sad and heartening to see some of the parents really nodding at that point. Like, yeah, I do need to kind of join the choir. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and I think there's there's a grieving process that's really important and you know, especially with this whole trans thing like it's different from you know the normal trajectory of your kid grows up and they moves up they move off to college and you don't hear from them a lot I mean it's a different type of loss because yeah you know we, we touched on the different. ambiguous loss yeah. the ambiguous loss is is when a person is still there but they're so different that they actually are not that recognizable anymore so like the example that that we talked about was like if somebody has dementia and, you know, it could be your mother living in your house with you and she's physically present, but she does, she's a different person. She doesn't even know who you are and you don't know who she is anymore. And the, there's an element of that feeling, this kind of loss. But um, there's, a, so there's, that, an, there's another, just to jump in on that, there's another issue that has been raised often by parents and I think it's very valid. They feel they're dealing with a fake version of the kid. Yeah. And so that's a barrier to intimacy. I remember one parent saying, and he came down into the kitchen with his trans voice. So he's either in his trans voice or he's in his real voice. When it's his real voice, there's an easiness, you know, past the salt. It's just there's an easiness. But when he's in his trans voice, he's in his fake persona. And I, I, I can't connect with him. He's a different person. He's putting on a certain person. We often see that with teenagers who might suddenly sound like they're from Brooklyn and they're from Offaly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it does, you know, teenagers do do that. They, you know, they put on these personas and stuff. But if it's trans, I could see how the parents are thinking it's a barrier to intimacy. It's fake and it's self-destructive. This is not good for you. So sorry, I, I went off on one there, but the ambiguous loss is part of it. It's like it's not even grief that something has happened. It's also there's there's a kind of a, a, a superficiality mm-hmm. in the whole thing that I just can't yeah. connect to, which is sad. Yeah, and I mean, th- that is part of the loss. I mean, you're you're grieving the way things used to be. Yeah. You're grieving yeah. the ease that used to exist. Yeah. When you were on the same team and yeah. it was kind of shoulder to shoulder, you and your buddy, you and your kid, it was lovely. Yeah. And it's been smashed up by something that you never saw coming. Yeah. And with the younger kids, you know, we were talking a lot about adults, but when when it's a younger teen, there's a real loss of innocence that feels like it's part of this. And suddenly the kid is talking about breast binders and like, you know, weird websites that they go to or all the, the porn. I mean, there's a lot of loss of innocence that's happening around the time of adolescence and puberty when, you know, this this goes in this direction. And a loss of, of, you know, support that parents feel. Like like we talked about earlier, parents often 
have relied on certain people in their life or certain friends or certain neighbors who understand them, usually not neighbors in America, but, you know, (laughs) and then all of a sudden your support system is actually taken out from under you during one of the most confusing and isolating experiences. So there's so much grief that is going on for these families. Yeah. And you're not only the support is gone, but you've been misjudged and you've been banished. You've been exoriated. You know what I mean? It's, 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 It's insult upon injury. That happens yeah. to a lot of these parents. I think it's under under acknowledged. And then they go online and they get beaten up by people on Twitter for various misdemeanors. It's unbelievable how they get shot by all sides, is the phrase. Mm-hmm. Is how the, 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 you know, the parents experience. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of loops us back to that question. Of, Am I a bad parent? Uh, and I think, you know, all of these emotions that we're talking about he- here today I mean, we're we're trying to say these are all very normal, reasonable responses to what you were going through. And you are yeah. not a bad parent if you have doubts about this or if you feel like you can't. I mean, in fact, it's it's likely your deep knowledge of your child and your love for your child, which creates the hesitation in the first place. And so it's so unfair that fears driven by love are treated as though they are actually hateful. I mean, that's such a bizarre twist of, of the, the situation. And it's, uh, I'd, I'd even go more to honour the, the, the parents who have landed in the space where they're working with us or thinking about where how we're, you know, more thoughtful, reflective, more difficult path. They have turned up in a way I have seen many parents not turn up. As It's the difficult road. It's very easy. You know, when you've got a kind of friend, maybe they're a colleague, and they, you tell them a story and they say, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. Do 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 whatever you want, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they don't care. Yeah, go into the boss and give up your job. Yeah, whatever. I'm sure. Best of luck, you know. You do you. If the parent isn't, and some parents don't, I think we underestimate. Some parents really think, I haven't the energy and I, 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 I'm not turning up. I have too much going on and I'm not turning up. So, so child, if that's what you want to do, you can do it. Now, I'm not saying everybody, loads of parents for different reasons, you know what I mean? But there is an element of you have to give an awful lot of emotional bravery to saying it's going to lose me popularity. It's going to be exhausting. My own child, who I love more than life itself, is going to hate me. But for her, I'm willing to do all of that. Yeah. Makes you a very brave, honorable parent that I would have liked to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any last thoughts that we want to share with parents before we maybe we'll read some reviews, but anything else here? No, no. I, I, I would like to say, if at all possible, if anybody's not a parent listening, give parents a break. This is indescribably difficult. If you're not yeah. a parent and you think, oh, my, my kid didn't fall in because they weren't online, you know, there but for the grace of God go you. you. You know what I mean? It is a very difficult road. And I think parents should have a break. Yeah, I think so, too. OK, mm. so if you are still here listening to us, we are <laughs> well grateful <done>. and, and <laughs> apologetic. Sorry, <laughs> um, but we, we wanted to read a couple of reviews about the podcast. Yeah. So I, I have this pulled up here. So uh, here's one five stars. Uh, this is a wonderfully thoughtful, sensitive and insightful series. Thank you. Um, that was from Lanky, Lanky well, Lass. Oh, Lanky, Lanky Lass, Lass is clearly very intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> 
you got a good head on your shoulders, on your tall shoulders, which yeah. rise and sit high above the ground because you're lanky. <laughs> okay, um, Stefan Reese Williams says, I reckon, I want to read it in a country accent, but I okay. won't. I reckon this is the best podcast out there uh, that's principally on the subject of gender and its changing definition. Both hosts are so knowledgeable and yet open-minded. Very, very good. Well, thank you so much. Oh. <laughs> okay, I have a funny one to read you. I've got, I've got one that you sent me earlier okay, <laughs> from YouTube. You're both gorgeous and I love watching you guys on YouTube, but I often listen to you guys on Spotify to help get me to sleep. <laughs> Not because you're boring by any means, but that Irish lilt just has the most soporific effect on me. So much so that I've had to stop listening to you while driving. <laughs> <laughs> Sasha, I love you too. <laughs> Do not listen while operating heavy machinery is the That's it. Okay, yeah. here's a good one for you, Stella. Are you ready? Okay. It's called Stella, stop bumping the mic. Shit, really? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Read, let me read it. God, this content is so good. It makes me overlook the many insufferable audio issues the hosts have. Oh, no. Oh, Sasha, we got to up. Oh, no, I got to. I was bringing you in straight into the firing line. Well, to be fair, I have had a lot of audio issues because... There was an issue with my setup and our producer helped me resolve it finally, but it had been a long time and we couldn't figure out why. And I know that you just get I'm into it when you're yeah. talking, you're a mover and a shaker. And mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a way to wire this into your brain, but while mm -hmm. I'm talking, you should do all the movement that you can. Shake it out, get okay. it out of your system. And then when you're talking, be still like a robot <laughs> or whatever. I don't know I, if robots I, I, I'd be even more asleep sleepy though like put everybody to sleep <laughs> Jesus Christ but uh, yeah no it is actually a real pet hate of when I listen to podcasts I really dislike people who do that <laughs> well now so, you're gonna listen with yeah. a different ear and every yeah. time someone bangs a mic it will right. be a, rem a reminder it's a think, reflection I don't think I'm banging the mic I think I'm moving I think you're right I'm jumping around the place because I'm excited <laughs> well we have a sensitive mic issue this is one of our problems uh -huh. So right. people can see me here, you know, yeah. look, I'm just going to do this. Oh, wow. I know it that's going to aggravate people, but it, I barely <laughs> touched the mic and it was probably a booming sound in your ear. So we, ju we just lost Stella 9 million listeners. There, so. <laughs> I, love, I love that in your fantasy, we have 9 million listeners. <laughs> They've all turned off, <laughs> yeah, but we still got our other millions. I'm going to read a few more and yeah, then we'll on. wrap it yeah. up. Okay. <laughs> Truly, honestly, balanced and thoughtful. Some episodes could use a little editing, but it is glorious huh. to hear the two of these professionals at the height of their powers talk with such compassion uh. and insight into what is perhaps the issue of our times from can, ham wax. Can I just say, you know, you know, the height of our powers and it feels shocking, but I've never in my life actually felt like I could say, I really know this subject. I've Correct. never felt so on it about anything yeah. just like every single side I've looked at a thousand times over in different ways yeah it's a very exhilarating feeling to really know just to kind of really think I've never gone so deep into a subject anyway 
Yeah, it's no, too, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. It's And it's like such a compelling subject. I mean, I tend to have this like every seven years I get very bored with my life situation, but I'm pretty locked in. And Me I, too. Me too. I mean, I find different things interesting about it, but it's it's a really compelling subject. And it's interesting because I've heard really intelligent commentators and like public intellectuals say, oh, I'm so bored of talking about gender. Uh. Um they don't know what they're talking about. No, it, it kind of gets to the essence of what is it to be a person? You know, the way we always kind of semi nod to the fact that there's some sort of soul inside us. Well, trans really does question that. Are you just your body and your brain or is there yeah. something else? Is there a ghost in the machine as uh, one of the one of the great writers talked about? Do you, do you know, Stephen Pinker, I think it was, you said like there's, there's something in there. Is there something little in you? that you can dress mm-hmm. and adorn. It's, it goes to the very essence of being human in a way. Yeah, that, that is an amazing question. Mm. Okay, I'll read one more. It's called Informed Consent, and it was submitted by Danius17. I love your podcast. You ask important and compelling questions, and you're genuinely interested in the answers. A true spirit of inquiry. Here's a topic I'd like to see addressed. Informed Consent. Yeah. I recently listened to an episode of the Dark Horse podcast, which explored the salience of the Nuremberg Code, which uh, established the fundamental principle of informed consent in medicine for COVID policies. But I would appreciate a similar exploration of this topic, perhaps with a medical ethicist regarding transgender medicine, but not just with respect to youth. There has been considerable emphasis on youth transition because it's understood by many that they can't consent, but I don't think this should be the end of the discussion. How does informed consent apply to adults? Is it being applied correctly? Are MDs following their oath to do no harm? Yours is the podcast best suited to address this vital concern. That's brilliant. That's very, I very love interesting. This. Yeah. this is a great question. And I think we should vow to ourselves and our yeah. listeners to do this next year. And can I just say, adding on, there's informed consent in psychology and then there's informed consent in the law world. And there, there are different concepts. So yeah. they both need to be looked at. That's very interesting. Yeah, we've well, got to do that. We'll, we'll definitely keep that on the radar. I've been thinking about that a lot. That's great. Okay, well, we'll sign off here. And uh, thank you, everybody, if you made it to the end. Please do <laughs> do check out our YouTube and subscribe and like the show. It really helps us to share the episodes and get more people listening. I mean, if we're going to reach 9 million listeners, <laughs> like Stella said, we better get on it. Yeah. And you, <laughs> we need you your can, help. <laughs> you can all go to sleep now. <laughs> Bye-bye. Good night. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.